Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my co-host and acting producer, Sunday Mint. Hey, Sunday. She's giving me peace signs. This season's theme is adopting Elixir, and we're joined today by a special guest, John Mertens from Change.org. John, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we're really excited to have you on because everybody knows about Change.org. Can you tell us about who you are, what's your role over there, and what is Change.org? The short version of who changes is if you've signed an online petition in like the last 10 years, odds are did it with us. Um, but overall, change is a platform for digital activism. What we're looking for is a world in which no one is powerless and that creating change is a part of everyday life. And that's specifically in my role. I'm a director of engineering for our communications and integrity squad or group. And this is an interesting week. This is my six-year change anniversary with change. So I've been here for a minute now. Wow. That's Congratulations. A, yeah. Huge milestone. Six years. Also change anniversary. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> we've got our, our terms, all of my frolics and my change anniversary. I actually gave a demo this morning. That was essentially the presentation I gave during my interview six years ago. That was all about stuff I had done in the past. And I was like, most of you don't know this because I'm just old man Mertens around here, but here's what I used to do. And that was fun. Amazing. You're a longtime listener, first time caller, as you self described yourself. Can you speak a little bit as to why you wanted to, to come on the show today? In the, let's call it, I don't know, summer of 2017, I was at home on parental leave. Shout out to Change, amazing parental leave policy. And while my infant son slept, I learned about Elixir. And in doing that, I was listening to podcasts and, and doing some just simple crud app kind of things. And so when I came back off of parental leave at the basically the end of 2017, I had this new thing in my head. We are a at that point almost exclusively Ruby and JavaScript outfit. And when I came back from parental leave, I just had this like, I now have a new hammer. <laughs> that has some very good use cases and let me find a nail to use this on because I know the way that I work, I will not get that deep into a thing unless I make it my daily. This is the thing I work on every day. And roughly at that time, there had been a company decision to move away from a big vendor software thing that we were doing and bring it in-house. And I would not shut up about Elixir. And so uh, I basically advocated for us to start using Elixir on this new system and that was in like spring of 2018 and we've had like great success with it. I had a good relationship with Jose and the formerly platform tech now Dashbit crew. And so like when I hear that there's a year as a season about adopting Elixir, I was like, this is literally something I know about. Let's talk about this. Change has a fun story about it. And when I can combine the things of like using not just like great tech, which I do love Elixir, Whatever the phase, you do the honeymoon and then it's not as exciting. Then you're like back to like the rekindle. I'm very much in that world. Um, and so I just want to do more of it. Yeah. So when I hear about us uh, or you guys talking about adopting Elixir, then I just want to be like, we had this really good story. I love to use this amazing new tech to do essentially good in the world, like use these skills for good. And that's something I thought might be interesting here. Okay. Well, take us back to if you can remember like what 
introduced you to Elixir, if you remember how you found it, what your first project was, th those are kind of the questions I'm, I've got in mind right now. The first time I really heard about Elixir properly was from like uh, the Bike Shed podcast years ago. Wait, the Orange uh, website? The <laughs> Hacker News. Oh, okay. Okay. I was thinking, I was like, is there an orange website that I don't know about? Uh, yeah. Sorry, I use, for someone who builds stuff on the internet, I go to like three websites and I'm not. It's like, it's like, I don't, I, I go to Twitter and I go to Hacker News. It's the blue one. Oh, it's that's one with actually all the how you remember it. And it's orange. <laughs> yeah. I thought fun. you were just like making fun of it or like that's no. like your nickname for it. No, I also don't like to give Paul Graham any credit anywhere. So I just, okay. Okay. yeah, what is Paul Graham? And I don't read the comments. I'm just, I'm surprised when people do. I'm just like, I'm here for the headlines. And then that's me. And I move okay. On. Okay, cool. So you find Elixir on Hacker News. That's why I know what NIM is. Because I'll see that come up. Or like. What is NIM? It's another language. Wait, what's it called? Pony. I've actually written some code in Pony. There's a Graxio course on Pony, I think. Okay, Sunday admonished me a little bit, and so we, we, we're going to uh, frustrate the audience here and go way back in time. <laughs> I want to know, when you were a budding technologist, how did you get into programming? Were you formally trained, et cetera, et cetera? Probably. Would be formally trained is the right word, but I am from a tiny town in rural Iowa in America, and I, Iowa used to be a really strong education state and when i was in first grade we had access to logo the programming like the computer languages on these like cartridges that you put in you make the turtle go around the screen and we did that in first grade and i was just like this is amazing i like figured out how to do the stuff that the teacher didn't know how to do and like made the screens flash and then draw a million shapes all at once and it was amazing and then there was really a lot of programming availability until i don't know in high school we got a 486 PC at home and I convinced my incredibly honest mother to like go buy a government discounted version of Visual Basic 3, I think. And I used that. I was in Windows all the time. So I made fun little games and stuff, program calculators and things like that at school for math classes. Did I have, you know, like a thousand GeoCities web pages was sort of the intro into web development. And then I went to University for Computer Science and it was I always joke that like, I got the degree and then 15 years later I used it. I was under the impression I was going to go and code all day and that's what I wanted to do because I was really addicted to coding, still am. And then I was just like, ah, oh, big O notation. That's fine. Like, this is a fine thing. These, it was just stuff that was just like, okay, that's cool. I want to know how to make more uh, like different apps and VB or something, or I do something in C++ and be like, Where's the website? I don't get a website out of this. Like it was just not really aligned. So I would do side jobs as like my classic MO was to arrive somewhere for one particular job and then pitch them while I was working there to go work on a different job. So like I would enter as like IT tech fix it person. And then I would say, oh, this problem, you know what? I, f I know this thing called ASP and I will go, I can make your work order system on the internet. And somebody would be like, yes, you work for me now. And I would switch from like installing Windows on machines to now I'm just like blagging my way into doing this. And this is where like I have like read an article about, in this case, like ASP. And then I was like, yeah, no, I can figure it out. And then went and like hurriedly learned it. And like, and for people that aren't familiar with ASP, it's like old school web page scripting language. I mean, it was one of Microsoft's first things. Is it .NET or is there a difference between ASP? This is pre.NET. 
But is ASP.NET related to ASP? I believe so. I think it's the okay. next iteration when they brought everything into the like .NET architecture. But this is, funnily enough, the second time I'm talking about this today. <laughs> oh, did this come up in the IEEE? No, no. I was pairing with a, one of our other SmartLogic engineers, Joel, and he mentioned it. I don't remember why it came up, but he just said it. <laughs> I think, yeah, him and John probably have similar pedigrees. <laughs> this is kind of the both traditional and non-traditional background. Like, I, so many people have responded to this question of like, yeah, I was in like middle school building websites on GeoCities and Angel Fire and stuff. So that's very normal. But then also going to do the computer science degree and being a little bit disappointed. Do, do you ask about big O notation at change.org inter, uh, job interviews? Does that come up in the job interview process? I'm not a fan of that at all. No? Okay, cool. That, that's a good... I'm just trying to give you <laughs> yeah. like, like, you know, good opportunities to recruit our podcast. We have done a lot of work on making the hiring process of change much more sane and like humane. We do have a straightforward and elixir take-home assignment that is time box specifically to not like bias towards people that have a lot of free time and just be like, we will shorten our on-site interviews to give you the time for like, go and work on this, this other app. App's a big work. It's a very small problem to solve in elixir. But I'll jump back to the thread on the other experiences with this was like people that don't, uh, aren't familiar with ASP. It's also very similar to early PHP. And that was the other big one that I started months apart. And those two like were very similar. It was sort of different syntax in, as far as I knew and was at a different place and said, oh, I'm in the IT thing. Let me actually make your internet webpage and did that instead. We're curious because this is kind of a fun one that comes up every once in a while. What your your first job was? Was it a was it a programming job or did you sort of do one of the more traditional high school kid gets a job insert here? So I learned at an early age that, I mean, I probably could do a lot of manual labor, but I was not a fan of it. I'm a very traditional, lazy programmer. <laughs> and so while my friends would be getting up at stupid o'clock in the morning and detasseling corn, which is a fine job, make good summer money, I was like, I'm going to go and be an IT intern at the prison and go work there. And so, I mean, that wasn't my first job, but I was like, where can I sit in front of a computer? Because that's where I'll be better at this. And it was also way better paying. And that's been another thing, like truism through this is to be like, let me, can I, is there a way that I could get more money and do less moving of my body? And and that's, yeah. <laughs> oh man. So you woke up every day for a summer and went to the local prison? Yeah, it was a medium security correctional facility and a drug treatment program. It's a small town. I knew a lot of people that worked there. What was the job? IT in terms of like managing their systems or? It, it would mostly be like troubleshooting computers. Like, you know, this thing is not loading. And a lot of my job was like teaching people about RAM or I would sit and there'd be somebody who'd been at this job for like 40 years. Computers were newer, spreadsheets newer. And this is like mid 90s. I would teach them you know, offhandedly, we got a few minutes like, hey, you, it looks like you could use a formula in the spreadsheet that you're working on. And I would teach them about formulas and just be like a deity among them at that point, which they were helpful. I was like, cool, now you got more time to do whatever you want. And we don't have to tell your boss that you're faster now. I had to do a whole operation where I had to, my sister worked inside the prison and her Windows NT, for people that were familiar with that, had some weird paging configuration where it only had like two megs of disk to use for 
RAM overflow. And this is, is like a four megabyte RAM system. And so that she would turn it on and then like an hour later, it would finish booting up. And there was sort of an adversarial IT tech that I was sidestepping around to go through this. And I had to make a disk from an exactly same computer. And so it, this whole sort of hacking operation in the prison. But it meant that my sister and her colleagues suddenly had a computer that only took like a minute to boot instead of an hour and they could actually get work done on it. So there was also drama involved. You could have made a whole TV show out of it. <laughs> I was the intern. I was like, I know that my position here is to be a pawn and you guys can blame me about stuff because I'm going to leave. Let me just, in the power struggles between two different institutions on the same campus. Amazing. Yeah, I love this idea of a goal just being to move as little as possible of your body. Like that's a good career goal. Like the less your job requires of your body, the better the job. I think I was telling Sunday my dream job is a job where I can just read and talk. <laughs> yeah, that was something that you said on this podcast. If I can just never move my hands or my feet at all and just completely be reliant on eyes and mouth. And then one day maybe Neuralink and just, <laughs> just think the things. <laughs> think the things. I, that, would, that is the dream job. I don't want to give the wrong impression. I do actually enjoy physical activity and like using my body and, and training it, but I don't. Oh, I don't. I feel like my value to a company shouldn't be attached to that, or we should be inversely paying more for that because it's harder to do. I'd be okay if we didn't have bodies. I want to be like just a disembodied <laughs> spirit. Like a gel. Like, yeah, well, not even a gel. I just want to be like an ethereal, like, uh, like hyper plasma. Anyway. So you got into programming this way. Your first job was at a prison. That's pretty awesome. We don't think we definitely have not heard that before. You read about Elixir on the Orange website and what? You build a home project. You set up your alarm system using nerves to the chagrin of your wife. What What is the first project? Nerves is still on my list. At the time, well, I had just moved out of a Knob Hill neighborhood in San Francisco. And anyone that's familiar with there knows that there's a bunch of that's where the cable cars go. Both main lines go were like outside of our apartment. And my partner and our daughter had, who was I believe three at the time, had made this game where they had charted out all the different cable car numbers. Each one of them has a number. And so they were spotting them and being like, oh, I saw a number 42 or whatever. And then they, she would check it off on the big chart. And so like my toy app was to make like a web app that you could see a cable car and be like, oh, I got this one. And I, on their website, there's like just a table that has like the number and like the history of that car. And so like I made it as a browsing thing. And then you could also like take a photo and say like, oh, I spotted this. And you do cable car spotting is what it was called. So you made an app to solve the trolley problem? <laughs> it's the trolley witness problem. <laughs> That's actually pretty awesome. This is your child. How did they enjoy this project that you built? Like many of our together tech projects, I was a little bit more excited than she, mostly because we had just moved out of the Nob Hill neighborhood and, to, oh. <laughs> and there's no cable cars out there. So it'd have to be like, let's go back to the old hood and look for cable cars. She's like, dad, we're not going to see any. Yeah. And it's like 50% done. I think I've also done some of the similar, like, you know, let's not really clone Slack, but make a chat app or, you know, uh, some sort of bot that can sit inside a chat app, that kind of thing. So the funny thing is in all of the Elixir, with regards to Phoenix, I'm still very much a noob because the first three applications that we built were all part of one bigger thing. It did have Phoenix in it, but it was like the easiest piece that someone else, like someone else built it. My whole world has been in like 
generically called like data processing demons um, built in Elixir. I actually, it's funny that you say that because we don't hear that as often, but that's actually kind of how I started in Elixir too, was I didn't use a lot of Phoenix and I still feel a little like an Elixir or a Phoenix noob. And every we talked about this the last episode, but whenever I try to find resources on Phoenix, I am now in live view land <laughs> and I can't actually find things, but that's a me problem. I understand that. Yeah. So we're interested in, you've got this cable car project. You've got a few of these things. How does that rope into change.org and change.org's usage of Elixir? Were you the person to pitch it or or did somebody else bring it on? How did that come about? So I had been dropping hints generally to my previous boss about like, hey, look at this thing Elixir that I learned about. It was the article where it was a Discord that had the like multi-million connections it's now the article's old enough that I'm forgetting all the details, but it's the one to be like, oh yeah, we just kept pushing it and got millions of connections to one server. And he thought that was interesting. And then when, so it's interesting, I'll just dive into Adopter real quick because the advice that I'd seen on adopting Elixir generally had been like, you know, you take a small thing that's less, not that important, maybe like convert it and then try to build momentum with that. And I think that's like a viable strategy. But what happened in our case was once I heard about this new project and I was like, the shape of it was like, imagine, you know, a big queue of millions of messages that need processed at the end of it, there's a third party API call. And we need to do this as fast as possible without knocking out other systems. And I just, I think I just watched Jose's Lambda Days talk on Flow when that got released. And I was like, this sounds like exactly it. And I showed my former boss this and he was mostly convinced but where i was going with the small problem is that instead of a small well-known system that you know, doesn't get a lot of use you could convert that over this was essentially like a greenfield replacement of a business critical service that we're bringing in-house and now that we're a year out of contracts and things i can say like this is our entire email infrastructure so when I introduce myself to people and say I work at Change, the two main reactions are never heard of it or, oh my God, you guys send me a lot of emails. And I say, yes, that is now the problem that I'm solving. But we used to use Salesforce Marketing Cloud to send what at that time was roughly like 600 million emails a month. And now we've switched over to a gen stage based multi-application system that sends over a billion emails every month. So it like processes that many messages. It's more than that, that we process, but like that's how many emails go out of it. So this was a system that something would happen on a site. Like this summer we had this uh, justice for George Floyd petition, 15 million people signed it. That petition starter writes an update about it and sends, oh, you know, here's progress on the campaign. They hit post that shows up on the site, but it also now triggers an email to 15 million people. That shows up as effectively one message in a queue that our Elixir system pulls in, runs a query on a third part, you know, like a Redshift system, this big data warehouse, pull out a bunch of information, and then that enqueues 15 million new messages. And then we just churn through those as fast as possible, check for if they've unsubscribed, and, you know, this or that, is the petition still active, all these different parameters and pass it through. And then we like build up the actual HTML and plain text version of the emails, use batching to put this all together and then ship them off to the service that actually does the sending for us, our, our MTA. 
And so like, that's the like simple version of the system. And it just, because of gen stage underneath, it just hums and does all these, it's such a good win. And now we aren't paying some other company a ton of money to do this. We're doing it in house. We control our data. You know, we, we can do our own analysis on things. It's a much better position to be in. So this was the very first kind of mission critical thing you're building over at change in elixir have you inspired other parts of the team to move over or is this kind of still the elixir core and this is just what you're charting along on or where has elixir gotten to at change i'm in a position at the company now where i can say things and they might become policy and so i keep telling people that elixir is our default backend technology we love ruby but some of the things we're doing she can't handle. And so we have lots of systems in Ruby. We have a couple in JavaScript in the back end. And then now we have, I think the last time I looked, we have like 22 Elixir repos in our organization, at least one open source one that we took over. And then probably have 50 engineers in the company at the moment. And at least 14 of them are competent Elixir developers. So like it's grown, it's outside of my team. We also talk about how that happens, but like that was the that communication system was the first step. And then it expanded from there into addition to the communication system. We have a good pattern for like handling messages off an event bus. We have systems for partner for like receiving webhooks from external vendors, that kind of stuff. So now we're just like all of our, our whole, like you guys have like rollout flags. We have a whole like souped up rollout flag system that is, uh, we just converted from a, javascript file in our front end now into a full-fledged elixir app no problems at all it's been great so like it is it is taking over partially because i keep saying things like that that we're taking over and it's it's happening but that's it is definitely the future of what our backend technology changes you are manifesting the future that you want to be in <laughs> essentially so you're you're saying you kind of did it the opposite from the way a lot of people either do it or give advice on how to adopt elixir is that like you guys did a full write or rewrite? Was it a rewrite? It was a takeover. We deleted a bunch of code. I mean, it could fall under rewrite, but we didn't own the thing that we were rewriting. Okay. So you wrote for the first time the big, the main, the mission critical piece of code in Elixir. And then the smaller side things are now falling into a place in Elixir, 22 or so repos. Interesting. Interesting. How's the response to the Elixir takeover, as you're calling it? How has that response been at Change? So we try to be pragmatic at Change and generally try to put data around what we're talking about. And so one of the things that we've been getting, especially when it our legacy systems or our, our default would be to build a new system in Ruby and Rails, if we can show that you we could essentially do the same thing, but faster like it's the the easiest pitch is to be like hey it's faster rails like that's not like it's hundreds of caveats no one can see me waving my hands around it's like ah it's not a real that it's it's a high level comparison but then we start doing things like we have a an event bus or like a, a big event log that we're building out and one of the patterns i'll just dive in this for a second because i think it's interesting that we found is that so we have people aren't familiar, it's our style is like events are happening at sources of truth and they're emitting events onto a, a message bus that's like petition created or like signature created and like that. And so 
we have certain services that now can listen on those buses and the way they pull it out is it comes off of there and goes into an SQS queue. And then that data gets processed and aggregated in a specific application and then the results are exposed through a API. What, what is an SQS queue? Simple queuing service. So I'm saying the letter S, the letter Q, the letter S, and then Q-U-E-U-E. Uh. <laughs> so from Amazon, if people are familiar with it, durable, high availability, at least once delivery queue, pretty solid. It powers a bunch of the stuff we do. And happily enough, Broadway plugs right into it, essentially out of the box. So we now have this pattern where we can say, all right, we'll build an app and it will ingest a bunch of data off the queue via Broadway and be back pressure driven and pull these events. So like, say somebody shares a petition and we find out about that, you know, a petition shared event gets put on the bus. We have a service that listens for that event and then we'll aggregate it. So it's like aggregated by user or by petition and things like that. And so it just listens to the uses Broadway to connect to that pipeline and just pulls out messages and aggregates them in its database. And then there's a Phoenix API built on the other end that essentially serves up those aggregations to front end apps that want it. And that sort of like Broadway in Phoenix out combination is really great for these event driven architecture setups because we're able to just pull off with like, we don't, we set them up and they sit there and run and do their job. No problems. Every season we do this show, we have some sort of unexpected themes that come up. And this season has been the unexpected season of the event-driven architecture. I mean, so many people have mentioned it. And and so I'm just curious for you, when you got the change, was that already kind of the way things were generally working? Or have you driven toward that architectural scheme over the course of your career there? It definitely was not the case when I got here. Change was in that fun position of the monorail, we call it the monolithic rails app in the center. The change code base has been around since like 2007, or that repo has. And it had been the process of breaking that up into different services was happening, but we were still like cheating because there would be like, now it's three different apps, but they're all communicating with each other via a database in the middle. And that's, that's there's no separation there. It's just codes in different places. But the idea was to do that. And now we're in the process of breaking those out. But part of that was to get us, you know, that gets so complicated. And like, if you have one service that that stores where petitions live and another service that stores where the signatures are, if you want to know how many people signed a petition, who are we asking? Where does that live? Like, you know, and so it, we have these like cheating mechanisms where it would like just get updated on the same in two places. And that has led us to a better, it just basically caused a bunch of kludgy process in order to move this data around. And there has been a movement over the last year and a half to get us over into this better EDA architecture. And my team has been helping the team that's responsible for it get to that first layer of it. So it's like the MVP of it exists and we are currently using it. Two systems are using it, but it's not throughout the whole company yet. But that is part of the engineering vision. The reason I'm curious about this is because we had an architecture season a while back and it seemed like a lot of people were kind of disillusioned with like the microservice architecture idea. And to me, this event-driven architecture, it kind of sounds like microservices because there are services, but it doesn't seem microservice oriented. It seems like it's oriented around an event bus. So, which it's funny because that actually is kind of monolithic if you think about it, but I guess what I'm saying is it seems like one viable option for scaling these 
services that have grown very rapidly out of a monolith is this event-driven architecture. And you're kind of proving it. Yeah, I think that the other thing that it brings in, and there are, I, Martin Fowler has a good talk about like the different styles of EDA, because I mean, I've spent years in like startups and places where I'm like the only engineer and I'm very much a product focused engineer. And so what I think a lot of this architecture gets us to is that we can unlock features really well. Say you want to add another thing to a specific service or because of a piece of data. Let me give an example. So like right now, I didn't mention the first Phoenix app that we built that was part of this original system. And its only job was to listen to the webhook that our email provider would bring in that said, oh, we delivered this message to so-and-so and this person clicked on this message and this one was opened and all that, and all the email stats come in in big batches and we just like process through them. And for our analytics, we are hooked up to a Kinesis Firehose and it goes into a big rich database and it's all Amazon, Amazon all the way through. But that means that that's the only place that that open data exists. And now in this conversion to an EDA architecture, we can now, that service receiving the webhooks, all it actually needs to do is emit an event that says, this one got open, this one got clicked, this one got open, this one got delivered, this one got bounced. And then different services that care about that, like our service cares about it because we'll go and unsubscribe somebody if they click the unsubscribe button. But if there's another team that's working on like, they you know, think about if you've ever started the petition on change.org, you have like a starter dashboard and it shows you like, you know, people that have visited the petition. But when you send an update, we don't tell you anything about it. But if we wanted to unlock the feature that said, hey, here's a, like a time graph of all the opens of your update. The only way they can do that now is to go ask the data warehouse, which is not a thing that you do on a production user facing system. But with this EDA architecture, that team just needs to set up something where they can listen for that event in their own service, aggregate it, do whatever they want so it fits their use case, and then display it to the user. It's a stream going by and you can just tap into it and take what you want out of it and that's fine. And then we could have a different analytics system that's sitting there and listening to it and maybe like writing backups to S3 or something the whole time. And, and they can all just like pull off that same log, essentially or that stream and put it out there. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most compelling cases that I've heard made for event-driven architect. I mean, like I, I think I might be sold. <laughs> this is like the perfect business case for it too. Yeah, it's and Elixir does it really well. I'll just as the pitch on that. I would also recommend to anybody that's listening, and this may sound a little weird, like the fundamental tone that I always talk about is the, it's called The Log. It was an article by... Jay Krebs, maybe, from LinkedIn. It's on the LinkedIn engineering post. If you look for the log, it is fantastic. And it just sort of, it's very high level, like this is why this should work, but it's essentially the same thing that I'm saying right now. And then the end of his essentially makes the case for like Kafka. And if we wanted, I think on our long horizon, that's where we'd like to get, but we're not, we don't have the capacity at the moment to like warrant that kind of investment because that's the system I think we'd eventually want to get to is a immutable log. You were saying that you have about 15 Elixir engineers over there. When you're hiring people, are you, are you looking for intermediate to senior Elixir engineers? Are you bringing on like Rails developers and kind of teaching them Elixir? Do you train Elixir or teach it in any way? When we put out a, a job description that's Elixir specific, it has worked out so far that the level we're hiring for is like a, a senior or a staff level engineer. But the, the candidates that we get are generally people who have been in the industry for a while, have experience in this, potentially Elixir experience. They're just, they are very self-selected. There are less beginners in that group. 
it's less for like people new to programming, but more of people on our staff who needed to train in order to come over to Elixir. I think if I remember right, we've hired now three people that had previous Elixir experience. They're all great. <laughs> They're my favorite people. No, not really. <laughs> I, I like them. I, I like them a lot. Um, yeah, we're not. I always joke because we'll it's one of these there. things where it's like, I've been saying this for years, then someone else comes and we talk about Elixir. It's like, heart connection. <laughs> you are my favorite children. <laughs> <laughs> but funny. that means that there's, you know, I had to train myself, everybody else did too, or we brought them over, usually from a Ruby or JavaScript background. It's not a thing that we've perfected. One thing that we've established is an Elixir community of practice that meets regularly. It's sort of morphed now. It's losing its educational component, and I'd like to bring that back. But it started as a book club, and now it's there's enough people, enough critical mass that we can actually like Last week, we were talking about which protobuf library to use or something or like things like that. But that is an, a, a way to expose it. We also make sure that PR reviews that come in, like we'll get the Elixir COP tagged on them. Or if we've got one person in each sort of pack, which in our organization is like a collection of squads, so you can think like 10 to 15 people. Wait, you, you call groups of people packs? It comes from the Spotify set up but they use tribes and we were less excited about using that so we called it i that. thought they used squads <laughs> i thought it was like the spotify squad model the next level up a group there, of squads i think there's no escaping the problematic metaphor uh, we are just trapped into it <laughs> okay. yeah because we have squads too and then it was the next tier up but in there if we can get one person on there that knows elixir pretty well then they can help lead on that and it's now a thing where like like I would love to have more time to spend on like, let's bring in some new people and then I can just like run an Elixir class. I mostly now run a, this is how our email infrastructure works. And that's just coupled with Elixir. We also, I mentioned pre-call about a demo I did today and we have weekly demos and a lot of them will slant towards Elixir as a like exposure. Here's how these things work. To the point now where uh, someone has made a bingo emoji in our Slack channel that the first time whoever mentions Elixir first, everyone runs in and puts their bingo in there. What happens if you're the last one? <laughs> no, it's mostly just like call it. It's, it's the old comment first is what it is. Ah, very cool. Very cool. Well, and also, you know, if you want to do a training, SmartLogic would be happy to, to do a little mini conference that change. That would be fun for us. That's interesting. That is something I've been looking around in my capacity now to try to figure out how to do that. I think the other thing I didn't mention is that we, when we first started, one of the main concerns about adopting Elixir was that we wouldn't be able to do it ourselves or train anybody. It was three noobs starting on it. And so we hit up Platformer Tech at the time and said, do you guys have any consultants that we could work with for a while? And they said, no, we are booked up at the moment, but we're going to try this new thing that we haven't told anybody about yet called the Elixir developer subscription. And I was like, cool, let's sign up for that. And it was a way to get one-on-one -on -one direct interaction with a consultant, you know, sort of the email support and like a video call a month or something like that. And so we signed up for that and then it was very affordable at the time. And my the next email I got was like, great, you're in the program. It's all set up. Your consultant is Jose Valim. I was like, sweet. Now we got Jose on the horn. And so he was answering all of our early questions and that was a really like beneficial relationship. To the point where if you ever hear Jose talking about Broadway, he talks about companies he worked with in order to develop Broadway. And we were definitely one of those companies because the SQS producer like that they built is like identical to our inbuilt one, like which I took that from some blog post that I still cannot find where it originally was. 
but I still have them there. And then the batching that Broadway does is a problem that we have been trying to solve in our one of our services to like batch up people who will receive the same email in the same language and send them off efficiently. And so it's kind of funny that our we don't use Broadway in the first two services that we talked to them about and where Broadway essentially partially came out of. But we have a very old tech debt ticket now that says to go back and fix that. You've mentioned something a few times that I don't know that we've actually like formally said so far in the last 40 minutes or so. You're the director of engineering, correct? I am now. Yeah. And that's what I was going to get to is that you've mentioned it a few times that it sounds like it's a newer position. So how new is that? Like, how did you get there? How did that factor into the way Elixir is kind of shaping around your engineering department now? So I've been in this role, in the director role, for just over a year now. I had been a, a principal engineer before that, and that's on our org chart there, the same level. So it was sort of a lateral move over to fill in and uh, expand my skills. But what got me to the level before that was the, center, the IC side of that was partially because we took a multi-million dollar system and built it in-house for a fraction of the cost and did it on time and on budget. And that was like, you know, in a new technology that's efficient and we don't have any of the problems. Like you can imagine a system where like we need to look up information on 15 million users as fast as possible, like potentially taking over or like knocking down a database or something. And with the back pressure that comes from gen stage, we don't do that. And so there's this whole like class of problems that we don't even deal with. And I think that a lot of people saw the light in terms of what Elixir could do for us and the cost savings and like efficiency there and, and came on board to it. And so now, I mean, I know how to work systems so I can push in the right places to make this become the thing that, that everyone wants to do. I'm not proud of that. It's me just acknowledging the system as it is and trying to use it for good. Speaking about, you know, change and making change, you list a blog post in your, your LinkedIn. It's right at the bottom of the things you're doing at Change in your like LinkedIn profile about bringing engineers to user interviews. And then I also noticed that you wrote it. So I figured if you wrote it and you linked it, you must feel strongly about it. And I'd like to know more. Yeah, that's funny because I will caveat that LinkedIn is a time capsule from the time that the person last looked for a job. Okay, so the part of my background that we didn't touch on is that I left the country when George W. Bush got reelected and did not live in America for about six to eight years. I came back to work for a nonprofit in San Francisco called Code for America. In that, I was a fellow for a year, and part of that had an intense month training all around user-centered design and doing user interviews and understanding user needs because we were going to be injected into the Philadelphia city government and try to help them become more open and efficient and participatory. So I got this very strong, like user centered, ask the user what they want kind of mentality. And so then when I, I had a, my own sort of civic tech startup that I was a CTO of for a few years before change. And in that same thing, I was always on the calls talking to users and trying to understand their needs. And so then when I came to change, one of the first things we did was try to understand how our decision makers, who are the, the people or companies or whatever that respond to petitions that are getting petitioned, there's a whole section for them to log in and respond. And so we went on a sort of a listening tour and went to a bunch of Silicon Valley startups, a couple of government offices, went to the UK and went to government offices there and their like standards board, went to Spain because they were really big in Spain talked to some government entities and corporations there 
and basically did a ton of user interviews and to try to understand the problems. And I always talk to other engineers about this because it's one of those things where like you get exposure to that. Flash forward six months, you're at the in the terminal writing the code for this feature, and then you're you have all these micro decisions that you're making. And there'll be one that's like, oh, you know what? Sherry at the mayor's office told me that this was a problem for them. Or like that she liked to do it this way. And I would hear that from a few people and be like, cool, now my micro decisions that I'm making in this setup are going to be influenced by that. I mean, it helps build empathy with the users as well. Like our current things that my group is in charge of include an internal system where campaigners that work for change can set up sort of mass emails. And part of that, I went and sat next to a couple of campaigners for, on multiple occasions and just watched them do this in the old system before we had Ooh. built the new system and learned all their pain points. And that was like that last, those interviews were like two years ago. And I have still bring that into, we're like implementing a feature now that I'm like, all right, Kim showed me this two years ago and this is what they do. And it was, it just allows that you don't get often these silos of not understanding what that user actually wants or what their pain points are. And that happens like we all work in the same company. We're all in Slack together, but we, unless I sat down next to them and watched them go through the flow, I wouldn't have picked it up. I was just going to say that just reminds me that there's like this level of human interaction that engineers don't often get. And it's like a certain amount of empathy that we can gain when building code for real people, when we talk to the people who are using it, we don't often get that opportunity, but it is usually very valuable when we do. Yeah, I'd see this in my, I used to do agency work and you know, building websites for hotel chains and things. And I would go and sit with them and be like, oh, now I understand what you're trying to get. We have the ability to do this at change. My team has less exposure to the user interviews right now, but there is a regular cadence and people are invited to them regularly. And my advice to people is like, go to them. Even if you don't, haven't been trained in this, just take the notes. Just take copious notes and just listen and be quiet. Just shut up and listen. <laughs> oh, timeless advice. John Mertens, this has been a really great conversation. I want to give you the final moments to make any plugs or asks for the audience, anything shameless off promotion, if you like. The floor is yours. Come work at Change. Uh, <laughs> go to change.org slash careers. It's the thing. We also have links from there should be our, we have like a, a link tree of all of our Elixir related content that people might find interesting. Rock and roll. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, John Mertens, for joining us today. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic production. Today's hosts include myself and my co-host and acting producer, Sunday Mint. Our regular producer is Eric Ostrich, and our executive producer is Rose Burt. We get production and promotion assistance from Michelle McFadden and Sine Daniel. Here at Smart Logic, we're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, and React. Infrastructure projects using Kubernetes and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Follow Smart Logic. That's at Smart Logic on Twitter for news and episode announcements. We also have a new Discord channel. If you'd like to join us there, look for the link on the podcast page or head over to smr.tl slash wizards hyphen discord for the invite link. And don't forget to join us again next week for more on Adopting Elixir. Thank you.